With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. Champions last season, eighth in the Premier League right now. After nearly four years unbeaten in the top flight on their own patch, the Reds are now on their worst ever losing streak at Anfield. But tonight, Liverpool's home Champions League second leg tie against RB Leipzig will be played in Budapest and not Merseyside. Perhaps a blessing in disguise for manager Jurgen Klopp, who's once again committed himself to the football club and is determined to see out his contract, which ends in 2024. Is the Reds' best chance of Champions League qualification this season now winning the whole thing itself? And talking of Champions League, could we see a reform of the famous competition in the very near future? 36 teams, one giant league table and more European fixtures. Sounds good, right? Those are some of the things being proposed by Juventus president Andrea Agnelli, who's called the plans his ideal Champions League and they could be ratified by UEFA as soon as the end of this month. But how will it affect our beloved Premier League? Perhaps there's more to this than meets the eye. We'll discuss all of that as well as answering the questions you've sent in to us via social media in our All Questions Answered section of today's packed podcast. We are, of course, Football Social Daily, the only Premier League show with a new episode every single day of the season. If you're a regular listener, then thank you. Welcome back. If you're listening for the first time ever, then welcome on board. It's good to have you with us. Hit subscribe like thousands of others and you'll never miss an episode of the podcast again. I'm Niall McCorn and alongside me to rattle through everything we have, Ian Brannan. Hi, Ian. Hello. I never thought that matters involving the Champions League would have anything to do with Jim Salverson, but seeing as West Ham United <laughs> might actually qualify for the Champions League this season, I suppose we best let him say his piece. Hello, Jim. I, I don't know how I will react if West Ham do get into the Champions League, which I don't think is going to happen, by the way, but I think it will be a mix of joy and just being absolutely terrified at the prospect of playing all those extra games and how it will affect us next season. But yeah, I mean, I never thought it would be a possibility this year. i tell you what will happen when West Ham qualify. A giant meteorite will fall from the sky <laughs> and destroy planet Earth. 
because uh, it inevitably has to be Armageddon um, because no one saw that coming at the start of the season. Now, you might be wondering why we aren't previewing tonight's Premier League game between Manchester City and Southampton. Well, that's because we've already done it. Yesterday's Football Social Daily is the place to go for that. So if you want to find it, just scroll ever so slightly back in the timeline and it will be there and we'll catch you back here shortly. But as for today's show, we have got so, so much to get through. We'll answer your questions a little bit later. We'll also analyse these proposals for a new look Champions League in the future. But we're going to start with this season's competition and tonight's last 16 second leg tie between Premier League side Liverpool and their German opposition RB Leipzig. The score is currently 2-0 to Liverpool on aggregate. And technically, Jim, this is the home leg for Liverpool. But again, it will be played in the Pushkas Arena in Budapest in Hungary, a neutral venue due to coronavirus protocols and restrictions. Do you think this could be a little bit of a blessing in disguise for Liverpool tonight, considering their wretched form at Anfield lately? I don't think it's a negative or a positive, to be honest with you. It's just how it is. This season, I think home advantage has been something that hasn't played a part at all. I think we saw, I think it was in the Bundesliga, we saw more away games being won than home games for the first time ever. And the absence of fans really does seem to have shifted that advantage a little bit. So I'm not sure it's necessarily a positive or negative. I know what you're saying about the bad home form of Liverpool at the moment. I I think that's more down to coincidence than it is actually the fact they are playing at home. Because they haven't looked good away from home or at home over the last few weeks. They're just a shadow of their former self. So I think that's a little quirk of the form rather than actually Mm. a direct result of playing at home at Anfield. I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of advantage of playing in your home stadium. You know the dimensions of the pitch. You know the way the wind whips around it and all that kind of thing. But in terms (laughs) of... Especially when you're Jürgen Klopp. Wind. (laughs) He hates a bit of wind, doesn't he? Not a fan of the weather as Jürgen. Yeah, I mean, so I can't see it being too much of a negative or a positive for Liverpool tonight I don't think it's going to have too much of an impact either way on what the final result is well talking of that recent form Liverpool have actually never lost a Champions League knockout tie after winning away from home in the first leg is that record under threat do you think tonight Ian with that recent form or is the fact that the Champions League is a different competition it's not the Premier League a chance for them to try and refocus and leave the Premier League on the shelf for the time being. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. And uh, even reading between the lines of what Jurgen Klopp's been saying in his press conferences and so on over the last day or two, you know, he's uh, firmly focused, it seems, on on the Champions League. Clearly, there's not a lot to be gained in the Premier League for them this season. And um, but there is something to be won in the Champions League. I think, uh, without saying so much, um, certainly is. Um, putting the Champions League as the uh, as the preferential competition in his mind, I suspect, now. Um, and they've got a 2-0 lead already. So I I, I think that they're they're gonna be um they're gonna be under the cosh a little bit. You know, I think Jurgen Klopp himself said that Leipzig are, are gonna throw everything that they've got at it. Um it's gonna be a, a, a tough game. But I can't see Liverpool being beaten um, by by two clear goals in order to uh, uh you know um to go out of the competition tonight I, I fancy them to go through and um, it's uh, it's it's going to be a good match I think a fair match to to um, fairly equally matched teams in, in many respects and, and two teams I think we spoke about this before that two teams that have uh, had similar fortunes really maybe slightly underperforming but they've got decent players on the pitch but they were um, pretty shaky defensively weren't they Leipzig in the in the first round um, they've got some big name players in their team who really didn't live up to their name 
So maybe that will change. <laughs> I think there'll be an interesting indication tonight of where the problems actually are for Liverpool at the moment. Because in the Champions League, they've done pretty well this season. Their form has been good in the Champions League. The Atletico-Madrid game, they were kind of run close in that one. But other than that, it's been pretty plain sailing. So it'll be interesting to see whether the actual shaky form of Liverpool has come from the pressures that they felt in the Premier League. The kind of idea that they've had to defend this title uh, having played at such intense and brilliant football for the previous two seasons and whether actually playing away from the Premier League and playing in Mm -hmm. the Champions League kind of alleviates that pressure a little bit and allows the team to play because even with the injuries that they had Mm -hmm. even with the centre-back problems even with Jordan Henderson being out Liverpool still have a very good team Mm. and they have a maybe not Premier League challenging team but certainly a top four worthy team when you look at the other teams in and around those positions and I get a bit Mm. fed up with the injury excuses that you hear from a lot of Liverpool fans at the moment because I don't think that's a good enough excuse there's something on something else going on at the football club whether it's mental whether it's a leadership issue I don't know but it'll be an interesting indication of where that problem lies. I'm glad you've said that because I think it is a good enough excuse and I think it is purely because the depth of their squad isn't there and I think that you rightly point to those above Jurgen Klopp's head as the reason for that you know Jurgen Klopp would have known that he wanted another centre-back and he never got one in the summer whether that was his decision to stick with it or whoever's above his head in charge of transfers if it is Jurgen Klopp then that falls on his head but certainly the club's owners will be looking at this thinking we need a much deeper squad I mean people look Mm. at the bench of Manchester City the bench of Chelsea and look at the quality in the depth that they've got the quality in the depth that Liverpool have got is non-existent but they're still even with the injuries but they've got the depth to challenge top four still haven't they when you look at the players they're bringing off the bench you think so I mean yeah I mean you look at the players and you look at the injuries and the problems Alisson is a great goalkeeper but he started making mistakes and their defence has been absolutely decimated Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson have both gone off the boil, which happens, form peaks and troughs. That's natural for any football player. The midfield has been scrambled with Fabinho being out with injured uh, injuries, Henderson now out injured. Uh, James Milner is probably not quite able to, to maintain the standards that are required for a long period of time, which comes with replacing someone who's come out through injury. And the strikers have stopped firing. And the backup to the strikers, Diogo Jota's out. Origi's no good. And, you know, you look at, the actual quality that they've got in depth isn't there. And I just think that there are issues there beyond that. I don't think that's much different to many other Premier League teams. And I mean, Manchester City are the exception to the rule. Well, then then if they're no different to any other Premier League team, then why can you say that they should be finishing in the top? No, I'm saying in terms of depth. And I think because they've, they've they've got the talent to finish in the top four, the problem they've got is they've got too many of their star players, too many of their big names, either not firing or injured at the same time. And I guess maybe that does make it a realistic excuse because I think there'd be very few teams that could cope with your two main strikers not scoring goals, your kind of midfield general being absent for such a long time and losing your centre-backs. And then you... And and I think that the issue with the full-backs that Liverpool has is they've essentially got full-backs that don't know how to defend. They've got attacking full-backs, which is fine if you've got Virgil van Dijk covering you and Jordan Henderson dropping Mm. into kind of a... to create a back three so your full-backs can bomb forward. But if you lose that spine, if you lose your your Henderson and you lose your centre-backs, then suddenly your wing-back or your, mm. your full-backs need to take more defensive duty. And they just can't do that at the moment. So, yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I'm being harsh by saying that the injuries aren't a 
a good enough excuse for Liverpool right now. But I, I do think they should be coping better than they are. Ian says that he feels that reading between the lines from Jurgen Klopp's press interviews that he's been putting his eggs in the Champions League basket. They're eighth in the Premier League table at the moment. It's a remarkable drop from last season. I think we all agree that the Champions League now becomes an equally good chance for them to qualify for the Champions League next season as finishing in the top four does. If you think that that squad with the injuries is good enough to finish in the top four, are they good enough to win the Champions League? Because if they get through tonight against Leipzig, six more games or five more games and they're champions of Europe again. Mm. Well, they're a long way off top four at the moment, aren't they? Seven points off Chelsea and 10 games to go, which is a pretty big gap not an insurmountable gap but certainly with Chelsea in the form they're in at the moment and not dropping points and climbing the table slowly and steadily under Tuchel you wouldn't necessarily fancy getting them that top four so if they have got a focus resource and they have to rest certain players at certain times yeah you'd certainly suggest that Jurgen Klopp would be looking at those Premier League games to maybe rest his superstars and keep them fresh for the Champions League because I mean a a cup competition is always going to be a lottery because it is the better team on the night rather than the better team over a sustained season, which is why we see cup upsets and unusual teams winning the FA Cup occasionally and all that kind of thing. But even bearing that in mind, I think you're right. I think probably winning the Champions League, as crazy as it sounds, is probably Liverpool's best chance of Champions League qualification next season. We wait and see whether Liverpool can win the Champions League. I think it would be an outrageous thing for that to happen. Um, I think that also them finishing in the top four looks equally as unlikely right now. Uh, Jurgen Klopp certainly has some work to do. Where would they stand for you if they if they won the Champions League? So we've, we've kind of said, we said at the end of last season, if they were going to be classed as one of the great teams of all time, they had to defend their Premier League title. They've not done that. But if they won the Champions League, two, a season after winning it, Mm-hmm. the season before if you know what I mean if you kind of <laughs> you get what I'm saying so they've won Champions League Premier League Champions League does that then put them up in those echelons of one of the greats or because they've done such a poor job of defending their Premier League title does that then that does that kind of remove that sheen a little bit um, it's hard isn't it because if you think back to 2012 when Chelsea won the Champions League I think Chelsea finished 6th or 7th in the Premier League that season they had sacked their manager halfway through the season, Andre Villas-Boas, and they brought in Roberto Di Matteo. John Terry was banned for the final. They had numerous injuries. I think Ryan Bertrand started the Champions League final at left-back. But all the stars seemed to align for Chelsea, and even though it looked like they shouldn't get through, they did remember Fernando Torres scoring that goal and Gary Neville having the, the goal-gasm on commentary. Which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty good impression, Jim, to be fair. <laughs> I couldn't tell the difference. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think that if you think back to that tournament, you know, sometimes strange things happen in the Champions League like that. Um, But are we saying that that Chelsea side were one of the best winners of the Champions League ever? No, not really. But perhaps we maybe should throw them into the mix in terms of of what Mm. they went through and how they managed to win it. I mean, you need a bit of luck to win the Champions League. But I think that yeah, we'd probably rank quite highly in terms of Champions League victories. I mean, Liverpool got six to pick from, so <laughs> I think if they made it seven, it, it would rank pretty highly just because of the situation that the club is in. But it's looking unlikely. I mean, you look at the way that Porto played against Juventus last night, a, a remarkable back and forth high octane game in the Champions League. Bayern Munich look imperious at the moment. Borussia Dortmund look good. I mean, you just can't fancy Liverpool against any of those teams with the form that they're in at the moment. But then again, we said the same about Chelsea 
in 2012 and they ended up going on to win it so I'm not too sure what we do know is that Jurgen Klopp's got so much work still to do Ian Uh, he's under contract at Liverpool until 2024 and on the back pages of lots of the UK papers yesterday were the headlines that Jurgen Klopp has committed himself to Liverpool uh, for the long term he said in the summer that he's going to stick around until his contract ends in 2024 Uh, this comes off the back of the Germany head coach Joachim Löw who's left the national team role or says he will leave the national team role after the Euros in the summer, which has prompted links with Klopp possibly taking over the reins of the German national team. He's ruled himself out. Um, some people have suggested also that when he was at Dortmund and things went wrong, similarly to what's going on now at Liverpool, Dortmund didn't give him enough time to figure things out. Do you think he will get that time at Liverpool to try and set the record straight and get Liverpool backfiring again? Yeah, I think they will. I, I don't think there's a, a manager who's kind of more unsackable at this moment in time than, than Jurgen Klopp. He's brought them the Premier Kenny League Jacket. success. <laughs> oh, well, Kenny Jacket. Kenny Jacket. Yeah. What about Kenny Jacket for Liverpool job if, if Klopp moves on? What about J- Kenny Jacket for Germany? There's, there's another one. But uh, highly unlikely that. things that are... Jacket for Germany, I like that. I could see that Jacket one. for yeah. Germany, yeah. Start a PR Can- campaign because it would do us all a favour down on the South Coast if you did. <laughs> get, get him in the lederhosen and uh, away he goes. There's an image uh, that you didn't want. Anyway, it's there now. Can't be unseen. So, um, yeah, anyway, Jürgen Klopp, I don't think that he's... he's It'd be a a very brave and a very stupid um, owner of a football club that sacks Jürgen Klopp. All right, they've not had a great season. Is it Jürgen Klopp's fault? No. Was it Jürgen Klopp's fault that Virgil van Dijk got crocked? No. Is it... Jürgen Klopp's fault that half his team are injured as we've just been talking about all these uh, first choice you know half his first choice team are, uh, are not available because of injury that is not Jürgen Klopp's fault there's not a lot he can do about it there's only so much he can do with the second string uh, players that he's is having to use whilst those second string players are all very good themselves so they're not going to sack him he's safe he needs the time and it does take time we've we said this I mean it wasn't so long ago we were at the start of the season Man City didn't get off to the best start, did they? And we were we were questioning on this podcast: Has the magic gone from um, from the guy? I can't remember his name now. Pep Guardiola. Man City. Pep Guardiola. How could you forget anyway, Pep Guardiola's name? Because he's sorry that... about Kenny Jacket in German clothing. <laughs> talking about Kenny Jacket has erased uh, my memory of, of Pep Guardiola. But uh, for, two peas in the, the pod, those two. For, for all the wrong reasons. And anyway, look. So Pep Guardiola. We were saying, has has his magic gone? You know, has he lost his touch? Uh, can he work his magic with the players anymore? And he's answered that. Firmly, because they're on the verge of, of winning the Premier League title not far from now. It's going to be um, a, a strong comeback from anybody who's going to try and catch them, I think, if they keep going as they have been. And they've had that, you know, 21 games unbeaten and they're probably going to go on and, and on another run as well. Um, having got past the, the Man United match, I mean, they didn't victoriously get past it, but it's out of the way now. And... He had time to, to work with his team. He had time for his players to, to come back from injury that he needed. And he had time to gel things together. And mm. that is the thing. You do need to give people time. There's no good going to come out of upsetting the apple cart and getting a new manager in because that's not going to gel the team together any quicker. So you've got a decent manager. You've got Jurgen Klopp, who is one of the best managers in the world. Who are you going to replace him with? Um apart from Kenny Jacket or indeed Chris Wilder and their obvious shoe-ins for the job. But no, they need to give him time. 
I don't think he's going to go for the German job. I think, um, mm. you know, if he was going to do that, he would. Uh, he, he, he wouldn't be denying the fact that he's uh, he's going to stay around till twenty twenty four. I think he's a man of his word, and I think he knows what it's like to be the the Liverpool manager in terms of um, how important it is to the supporters to be to be standing by your word. Mm. Um, you know, they've they've stuck by him. He's going to stick by them. I think it's just one of those things gets his players back firing again next season and uh, we'll see a different Liverpool. As you say, it's not his fault. It's just it's just one of them, them things. Life happens. I think with the job he's done, he's earned the right to have a little mm. bit of time to turn things around. He's won them the Champions League. He's won them the Premier League. He is adored by plenty of Liverpool fans across the world. And, you know, they're going through a bad patch and, you know, it's worse than a bad patch. It's a really terrible patch. But we're having a strange season. Liverpool are having a bad season in terms of injuries and there are mitigating circumstances and factors. So I think, as you say, I think it would be foolish for anyone to part company with Jurgen Klopp. Exactly. And that's it. If he had a, a team of fully fit players on the field and they were in eighth... Then you could say, right, well, maybe it's Jurgen Klopp and something's not working. But it's not the case. He's got his main stars out injured. And um, and it's a very busy campaign. It's different to normal. The games are coming faster and, you know, he's still got the European thing yet. And they could still be European champions. Might mm. not. Uh, obviously, as you said, they've got some tough opposition still in the Champions League to, to come over. But if he rests his stars and decides to sack off the Premier League a little bit more, as, as, as Jim mentioned... Um, he can really focus on the remaining teams that they have to come up against and and do a job on them. And it doesn't really matter what happens in the Premier League anymore. They're safe, you know. And if they go all out to win the the Champions League, then that gets them into the uh, into the Champions League next year. And um, you know, job done. It's as good as finishing fourth, isn't it? Yeah, well, Jurgen Klopp's next task is to try and steer Liverpool through to the quarterfinals of this season's Champions League. They take on RB Leipzig tonight in the neutral venue of the Puskas Arena in Budapest. They currently hold a 2-0 lead on aggregate. They've never lost whilst winning an away European tie. So even though with their bad form, you probably fancy Liverpool to just about get the job done tonight over their German opponents, RB Leipzig. Time for a quick break here on Football Social Daily, but we'll continue the Champions League chat after this because there are some interesting revelations about a revamp of the competition we'll do it next football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode listen to the latest premier league news updates and match reports now just ask open sport social Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the podcast from Sports Social with a new episode every single day of the Premier League season. Now, if you haven't heard the big news, Sports Social has launched the UK's only dedicated podcast network. And if you have your own sports podcast, you can come and join us. Absolutely zero hosting fees and a chance for you to grow your own show in our roster of great podcasts, including the likes of us here at Football Social Daily, of course, and also Humans of Speedway, too, with our own Ian Brannan, along with several other great shows, so why not check it out by heading to the website sport-social.co.uk and head to the podcast tab at the top of the page and hopefully we'll be welcoming you to the Sport Social stable very, very soon. Back to matters at hand now though and some really interesting news has emerged over the last 48 hours or so and it involves a revamp of the UEFA Champions League. Juventus president Andrea Agnelli is the man who's been speaking out about new proposals to freshen up the competition and he says that an agreement on an ideal Champions League 
isn't far away. He also says he's always been keen to avoid a European Super League, something we've spoken about on this podcast, something we've been fearful of on this podcast for a number of months now. And maybe these agreements are due to be ratified by UEFA as soon as the next fortnight. There's a really great article in The Guardian about this, um, which I recommend you go and read uh, if you're listening to this, if you want to know a little bit more context. But some of the key takeaways from these proposed new competition rules would be that the Champions League is expanded to 36 teams and it will begin in 2024. The new format won't be groups like we see at the moment. For instance, there's four teams in a group. It will be a Swiss-style league table. All 36 teams will play 10 games each and then all of the clubs are ranked 1 to 36 in the table based on the amount of points that they pick up. The knockout stages will remain, so those that finish in the top 16 out of 36 in the league table will advance to the knockout stages, leaving 20 teams to fall away at the first stage. The seeding is expected to be whoever finished top of that 36-team league table would play the 16th place team, the second place team will play the 15th place team, third place 14th, etc, etc, etc. So that's the way that things change to, at least if Agnelli gets his own way. First of all, just from those things that I've kind of just outlined there, do you like the new format? Second of all, do you think it will work? I don't know if I like it because I don't think I understand it, which is a bit of an issue, (laughs) which I think will be the general objection that a lot of football fans come to. I mean, football hates change. When you say you don't understand it, do you mean you don't understand it in terms of the mechanisms of how it works or you just don't understand why they're changing it? Because I guess it's a case of if it isn't broke, don't fix it. I think the Champions League works brilliantly as it is now. I'm being a little fastidious and I, I kind of do understand it, but I do think it's a complex system and it's not the footballing mechanic that we know from a cup competition of group stages, knockout stages, um, the kind of league ranking 36 teams that play each other 10 times. It does feel like an unusual way of doing things. Not to say it won't necessarily work, but I think the automatic reaction from football fans is going to be, well, this isn't what we do. This is now the Champions League works and that will cause a certain amount of friction. My kind of question around this stuff is, I mean, ultimately... I guess the form the competition takes, the actual way the structure is decided, what teams go through to which stages doesn't really matter. You're still seeing the heavyweights from the European game coming up against each other. The two concerns that I have about this format is the expansion of teams. The Champions League for me... I'm not saying it should be champions. I'm not saying it should be the number one team from every European nation. But if we're expanding to 36 teams, what does that mean for the Premier League, for example? Does it mean the sixth Mm. or seventh teams are going to qualify? And with the best win in the world, the team that is finishing sixth and seventh in the Premier League, they're not champions. They shouldn't be involved in the Champions League. So are we just going to get like a poor relation to the Europa League? And the other concern I have is you mentioned how this is a proposal that appears to be designed to cut off those plans for a European Super League. I don't really know how it does that because the whole European Super League ethos, the idea that your Manchester United's and Real Madrid's and Juventus's want to somehow pull up the drawbridge on European football and have their competition that is for them and they don't let any other teams Mm -hmm. in, they don't want to upset the apple cart or put any other chairs up to their big European table. I don't understand how this necessarily combats that because this is doing it doesn't. exactly the opposite. Yeah, absolutely agree with you, Jim. I think it plays into the hands of those European elite clubs mm. because if you imagine it, a massively long league table of 36 teams and every team plays 10 European games, 
in the Champions League group stages, if you if you play badly in three games, you're knocked out at the group stage. There's no recovery. Whereas actually, class will probably tell in the end that who will finish one to sixteen in the league table and progress to the knockouts. The chances are it is going to be the sixteen best teams in Europe because there is mm. longer for them to achieve their goal of finishing in the top 16 of that league table because they'll have 10 games to do it. So actually, when you think about it, it's more likely to be conducive to the likes of Real Madrid and Bayern Munich and Man City and Chelsea and these bigger teams in Europe. It's more likely to be beneficial to them than it is for some of the smaller European clubs, which, you know, would be terrible for the likes of, I don't know, Ajax, for example who have had some memorable European moments. They even won the Champions League in 1997. But to expect them to compete for 10 games against some of the top teams in Europe and finish in the top 16 seems unlikely because even if they finish 16th, they're going to play against the first place team in the knockout stages. So it just feels like it is very much angled towards the better clubs, the elite clubs, which is something that Agnelli says about the Super League he's keen to avoid. It just feels like an alternative version in a way. Well, I guess, I mean, as far as we, we forget that UEFA are a business and they're not a, I mean, they're a sporting governing body, but their primary aim is to make money. And I guess the intention of involving more teams in the Champions League is to expand those TV rights to bring more cash into the system. And I guess also that will play into the hands of those 16 elite teams that go into the knockout competitions, giving them a bigger slice of a bigger pie maybe does stave off that European Super League. Yeah, perhaps. And you've mentioned already about the effect that it could have on the Premier League. Agnelli has been saying, Ian, that the perfect balance for him of his ideal Champions League is two-thirds domestic football in a season and one-third European football. Obviously, there'll be more European games because of the 10 games that each club would need to play in this new revamped system, should it be ratified. He also said that Premier League teams have a maximum of 53 games a season, give or take, if you include the Cups. For German and Italian teams, that's 10 games fewer with 43 games per season. He also says that 20 teams in a league is too many and the Premier League would probably need to adapt in order to fit this new UEFA Champions League model. What are your thoughts on that? You know, kind of shaving the English domestic season in order to fit with those clubs that qualify at the top end of the table doesn't feel doesn't feel right to me I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking what's in it for these people because Agnelli is the chairman of the European Clubs Association which is which is overseeing this this is not really UEFA as such this is a proposal that they're going to send to them um, and then the UEFA's president is going to decide whether they they're on board with it or not. Is from from what I see. So I'm just looking at this, thinking what what is in it for the owners of these big clubs like Juventus? You know, Juventus who have just gotten knocked out of the Champions League, for example. And as you say, this just looks honks to me of the big clubs looking after themselves and giving themselves what ten get out of jail free cards. Uh, to stay in in this European tournament where in, inevitably the same yeah. six or seven teams are probably going to win every single year. There's no jeopardy in it whatsoever. The strongest teams are going to steamroll mm. in. And then, as you say, they're wanting to reconfigure the domestic leagues to see yeah. their whim that they've just decided. Yeah, why, well, why this should is what the Premier League adapt? Why should a yeah. club like West Ham, for example, to use them as an example this season, that looks like they could finish in the Champions League places. But last season, they were battling relegation 
Um, yeah. Why should West Ham play less games? And why should the Premier League be less teams? And why should we change what we've done traditionally for so many years to suit those clubs that already have the most money? To suit yeah. the competition that already brings in the most cash? I'm not sure I have a problem with less teams in the Premier League. Well, you would because you would be down, Jim. You'd be in the Championship. But I think we do have a very congested football season and losing fixtures isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't know whether it would combat. I mean, it's part of the argument to losing teams out of the Premier League is you get rid of the teams that don't really offer anything that kind of don't play expansive, interesting football, those games that appear last on match of the day every single week. But I guess those would be just replaced. Like the bottom three teams would still be the bottom three teams. There'd just be less teams in the league and less, and you, you still get that poor football. So I'm not sure that really flies, but we, we do well, have I don't an, think it we flies do... in general because the Bundesliga has 18 teams. Mm. La Liga has 20 teams. Like, so, so what is he saying? Is he saying that, you know, the Premier League and La Liga, the two best leagues in Europe have to, change their mm. plans well, in order to... I mean, I, I Serie A, the, the president of Juventus, the Italian league has 20 teams. That's what people won't like, and that's the problem we have. It's Brexit all over again. It's kind of like, w- mm. we do have a congested league system. We have a lot of games because we have got two cup competitions, two domestic cup competitions, then we've got European football to fit into that. But the idea that a European, someone from over there, is coming over here and telling us we need to lose two, two teams out of our Premier League. Who's he think he is? So it, it, <laughs> it's kind of got that element to it a little bit, the fact that we've got this European fella coming over and saying you have to adapt to our plans but I, d- I don't think that's the worst part of this plan to be honest with you I don't think that's the biggest negative to take away from it yeah I think I, th- I do think that it's just to be honest I think it's going to be boring I think it's going to be great for the teams in terms of financial stability in terms of sponsorship and knowing what they're going to get and TV rights and all this kind of stuff it's going to be boring for most of us because it's going to be you know the same teams winning uh and and you're going to come down, yeah, you're going to ha- have a, a crunch at the end. But he's also said as well, um, which is so, sort of as a knock-on to this, just sort of get a, uh, a, a focus on, on where his mind's at. He's also said that football must think of ways to attract a young, younger viewers. Um, now, as far as I know, all kids, right, understand what football is. My daughter's four. She knows what football is. She's been out in the garden this weekend kicking around like one of those little plastic balls out of a out of a, um, a, a ball pool kind of thing. And she, she can kick a ball better than I can, right, which is not hard. But um, she's, you know, so she has an understanding of what football is. It's kicking a ball with your foot. It's not hard. Kids do it. And he's talking about in order to get kids interested in a crowded marketplace, uh, we could imagine a subscription uh, for the last 15 minutes of a specific game because the attention span of today's kids and tomorrow's spenders is completely different to the one I had when I was their age. So he's mm. advocating that only the last 15 minutes of a match is worth watching, which mm. is utter crap. Yeah. Right? Why, why don't we just take the goalkeepers and the defenders off then yeah. for, for the last 15 minutes just to spice it up a bit? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a game that has lasted, hun- well, what 120 years or so now and mm. the game works kids understand what football is you don't need to reinvent the wheel it is a simple game that they're trying to make more complicated that's going to benefit the same clubs year after year and it's going to be boring watching the group rounds where the same teams are winning the same teams are getting beat every week and you're going to end up with a top six or eight of you know juventus Real Madrid, Man United, Man City, Porto, maybe if they're allowed in, Ajax at a push, and then the rest of them from wherever in Europe are just going to be down the bottom. It's going to be dull. I'd I'd rather see uh, like an FA Cup of Europe where 
everybody's in and you know anybody can knock anybody else out and you have some kind of tiny minnow from Belarus against Man United it would have to start three years earlier those games <laughs> yeah I know but that's <laughs> the thing imagine the builder I mean oh, well I let's just read that quote in full I mean He's stressed, didn't he, as you rightly point out, Ian, that football must think a way to kind of attract younger viewers in that crowded marketplace. Uh, this is the quote. We could imagine a subscription for the last 15 minutes of a specific game. The attention span of today's kids and tomorrow's spenders is completely different to the one I had when I was their age. According to some, Ian, Mr. Agnelli, who even though he's the president of Juventus, isn't even a sport fan, isn't a football fan, and he's just kind of there for business. Do you think comments like this expose that, if you will? Yeah, yeah, because it it shows he doesn't understand what football is. If he's if he thinks that you have to do something to entice kids into being interested in football, then and and he's only interested because they're tomorrow's spenders. That tells you everything, doesn't it? That he's interested in their cash, even mm. though they're kids. He wants them to buy into football. Kids buy into football. Maybe he hasn't actually seen any matches with people in stadiums uh, recently and he's forgotten, but you you will have kids in football grounds. Kids are desperate to, to watch football and be a part of it. And it's not just boys either, girls as well. You know, we have a, a mm. thriving uh, women's league now, of course we do, and that's fantastic and that's going to be on an upward curve too. You know, kids are growing up wanting to uh, not necessarily be footballers, but they're certainly interested in playing. You get a football out in front of a load of kids what are they going to do? They're going to kick it. And they've all got their own opinions of, of which team. Um, my daughter at the moment sort of stuck between, she's got half the family trying to convince her to be a Sunderland fan. But um, because Leeds are on the telly pretty much every week, uh, she's she's starting to veer that way. So, you know, it's... it's what a it's, terrible choice she's got. I know. <laughs> There's no winners. There's no winners. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it is that thing that kids are interested. And for him to think that kids are not interested and he's got to somehow entice in the next generation of football fans by doing this crap... Mm. Um, is um, it, it, you know it just just tells you he has no idea about yeah. what football means to to what football means to normal everyday hardworking <laughs> fans. Yeah, can I play devil's advocate here for just a second? Um, because and and I, I don't necessarily. I mean, I'm, I don't believe what I'm going to say, and I kind of agree with Ian that from a traditionalist's point of view you don't need to change football because football is a wonderful beautiful thing and one of the beautiful parts of it is the fact that you give a load of kids a football they stick down jumpers on the floor and they play football and it's pretty much the same game as the 22 people who play at Old Trafford each week play that's one of the beautiful things about football but I think what Agnelli is saying is this is changing slowly. And certainly from a viewer's perspective, I think football is changing culturally. So you have people who are following players rather than clubs now, which is something that would have been unimaginable a decade ago. The fact that the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo or the likes of Mbappe have bigger social media followings than the clubs they play for shows that there does need to be a seed change for those clubs and those clubs need to act more like brands than they do like football clubs, if they are going to grow and they are going to survive, and we're not talk- we're not talking about just keep making a living here. We're t- keeping the head above water. These are clubs uh, that have ambitions of being globally successful businesses, and if they are going to do that, they do need to adapt to things like modern attention spans. And people don't watch football on the telly. A lot of younger football fans don't watch 90 minutes of football on the telly. They certainly don't go to games anymore. What they will watch is 30-second highlights 
on social media from mm. certain games. And I'm, I'm talking about a level of fan. I'm not talking about the, the people who would class themselves as proper supporters. I'm talking about the casual fans who probably watch their highlights, probably play FIFA, will probably spend money on downloading a special kit or a player pack or whatever it is from FIFA. But they, in the modern game, are just as valuable to football as the guys who are going to games. And that's where Agnelli's coming from, I think. Well, he also said, just to kind of... Uh, wind down this section of the podcast even though we've all seemed to have blown a gasket he also said he wants to change the transfer market as well he said this is a quote no triple figured transfer fees between champions league participating clubs would maybe mean focusing instead on champion players in smaller countries allowing us only to buy players there these are elements we are discussing but certainly cost control will be one of the biggest challenges in terms of reforms going forward I mean, this is a can of worms that I don't want to open too much. I might just kind of crank the lid open slightly here, Jim. I mean, he, he's basically saying that because it will be a 10-game, 36-team league, that buying players off each other um, is going to detriment the quality of the competition and therefore fairness. And, you know, if you're going to change the Champions League, you have to change the transfer market as well. Mm. I mean, it feels like far too much hassle than it's worth for a competition like, as I said before, it isn't broken. So why is he trying to fix it? No, and you have elements like players being cup-tied that kind of protect that, picking off to play the best players from some teams to play against others. So I can't see how the current system will be too much of a problem. I'm not really un- sure I understand where he's coming for, from uh, this point. And, and surely there's questions about the the fairness of the competition or the restriction of player movement as well. If you're banning one team from buying players from another, that's limiting the options of those players. So it it, it seems a strange condition that I can't see how it would benefit the proposal in any way. So I'm not quite sure where that one's coming from. Well, Mr. Agnelli, who is the, I think he's the president of the European Clubs Association or something like that, which represents, I think, nine Premier League teams in that cluster of clubs. I think 230 plus clubs in that group uh, across Europe. But he's also the president of Juventus and he seems pretty confident that these changes to the Champions League will be ratified by UEFA in the next couple of weeks to start in 2024. Just look at last night's game between Porto and Juventus. Look how exciting it was. What's wrong with the Champions League? There's nothing wrong with the Champions League. We don't need to change it. Those are my thoughts. The one thing I would say is that these proposals tend to be one extreme when they get put forward and they get watered down and watered down and watered down. And I think the people who put these proposals forward have an understanding of that. So they kind of like ask for 100% expecting 30%. And there's un- there's no doubt the Champions League is going to change in the next couple of years. There's too much noise around it for it not to be affected. But I think this is an extreme of which ultimately we'll see a, a lesser version of it being implemented. I think we've spoken about the European Super League. To me, this just feels like a sideways step to their eventual goal. I think it feels like kind of a a veiled attempt to slowly Mm. phase in the European Super League. If it starts in 2024, it's still for me. A a change in the Champions League and the way we see things now, I think any changes are always going to be kind of engineered and geared towards those elite European clubs. Those are just my thoughts. Let us know your thoughts on social media at The Sports Social on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. And we're also on Facebook. If you just search Sports Social in the search bar, you can find our page there. So go and give us a like. And also social media is where we like to get your questions. You send them in to us and every Wednesday we try and answer them on the podcast. All questions answered is what we call it and we'll do it next here on Football Social Daily. 
Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Niall. I've got Ian Brennan and Jim Salverson alongside me and it's Wednesday, which means it's time to answer your questions here on the podcast. Thanks for sending them in. As always, you can get your questions into us via our social media channels. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So just search for Sports Social and you'll be able to find us there. Some of the questions that have come in uh, have been very interesting indeed, actually. But I'm going to start with a question of my own, which I set for you two. Um, Who is your player of the season so far? in the Premier League because I think there's been plenty to choose from um, I kind of asked you both to compile a top three so Jim I'll go with you first uh, give us your top three and then tell us why who you've picked as number one is your number one for player of the season right now well let me get my West Ham nomination out of the way first the one that no one's <laughs> going to agree with and put Tommy Suchek on the list because I think West Ham arguably much to my joy, have been one of the teams of the season so far. They have been yeah. certainly the surprise package of the season. And I think if this was a manager of the season question, David Moyes would 100% be up there. Yeah, definitely. And I think, well, I think Tommy Suchek has probably got as large a part to play in the success as David Moyes, potentially. He seems to have been the missing piece of that puzzle. Incredibly hard-working player, but offers something at both ends of the pitch as well. Pops up with goals every now and again. He is a tower when it comes to defence, defending set pieces in his own box as well. And like I say, he is just one of the hardest-working players I've ever seen on a football pitch. I think it was the Sheffield United game. He ran 25 kilometres during that game, which is pretty much double what you'd expect a Premier League player to cover during 90 minutes and it's more than I've ran during lockdown it's incredible (laughs) it's it's a phenomena and what I really like about his game is I think he's bought more out of Declan Rice as a player who we know is a huge talent anyway and we've seen Declan Rice instead of just protecting the back four which we've seen him do previously he's kind of added a freedom to his game and he's almost filling that Yaya Toure role a little bit where he can pick the ball up in front of his back four and he can drive forward and start the attacks as well so that's why Tommy Suchek for me is in the mix Uh, Ilki Gundogan I think has had a superb season and he's always going to be one of those players that is very underrated largely because he's just in a team of absolute superstars at Manchester City but you look at the challenges Manchester City have had this season we've had the injury to Kevin De Bruyne we've had the long-term injury of Sergio Aguero we've had players within that team maybe not particularly in the midfield maybe not stepping up to the levels they previously had reached and he seems to have come in and filled all those roles he's just been this great all-round player he's scored some stunning goals (coughs) when City have needed them he's provided a little bit of creativity in midfield Mm. and I think Manchester City would not be competing for the Premier League title if he wasn't in that mix. He won't get a nomination for PFA Player of the Year because he's just not the type of player that does but he definitely deserves it. The player I think is most likely to get the nomination for PFA Player of the Year even if I'm not sure he is the best player this season is Bruno Fernandes and we go on about the stats padding and the fact that he takes penalties and that bumps his goal totals off But what you can't argue with is the impact that Fernandes has had on that Manchester United team. He has completely revolutionised them as an outfit. He seems to not only add goals and assist to Mm. his game, but he seems to be a player that when he steps on the pitch for Manchester United, he he virtually grabs the other players by the shirts and kind of lifts them up to his level. And so 
I think he will probably be up there for PFA Player of the Year. If it was a level playing field, give it to Tommy, to, Tommy Tuchek. But <laughs> because he's a Man United player and Manchester United would not be second without him, I think Bruno Fernandes will probably mm. edge it at the end of the season. Do you know what? I think it's probably unfortunate that Bruno Fernandes arrived last January and that the Player of the Year award is done on a seasonal basis and not actually on a calendar year. Because if you're talking a calendar year, you know, um, from January to January, I think Bruno Fernandes has to be in the equation, but, you know, not quite the case. So interesting uh, nominations there from Jim. What about you, Ian? Who are your top three for potential Player of the Season candidates? (laughs) Yeah, broadly along the lines of what uh, of what Jim was saying but I'll, I'll change a couple because I've thought of a couple of others but I agree with Bruno Fernandes because I think he has carried um, you know Man United kicking and screaming to, to second um, yes he scored a lot of goals from the penalty spot but that's uh, also the same way as how um, Alan Shearer uh, managed to, to become the uh, all-time top scorer in the Premier League as well quite broadly you know he was taking a lot of penalties too so you've got to have the penalties when Lucky couple... Marley's not on the podcast today oh, Ian. well yeah <laughs> He wouldn't take that kind of slight on Alan Shearer. Alan Padstatting yeah, Shearer. Yeah, well, listen, I've, I've seen him take enough penalties, uh, too many penalties, uh, certainly against even just Leeds, let alone anybody <laughs> else. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly uh, pads, uh, stad padding, stad pad, stat padding going on. Go Ravenous, Dormer today. Um, the other one I'd like to throw in there, a couple actually, Mo Salah. Um, it, I know that Liverpool have had a fairly um, uneventful season as far as uh, storming to the top of the league are concerned. But even despite all Liverpool's troubles, you know he is the top scorer in the Premier League currently. And uh, without his goals, Liverpool would be in uh, quite a bit of a pickle, probably you would uh, have to say. So I think Mo Salah is worth a shout because whilst the team haven't been uh, firing, he's, he's certainly um, done his bit. And um, the other one I'll throw in there, for Leeds, uh, with my Leeds United hat on, um, I will say Calvin Phillips because when Leeds have been missing Calvin Phillips, they that's when they've had problems. He makes such a difference that when he's on the pitch, they're a, they are a much more balanced team and really he's the driving force behind their success on the pitch when they've when they've had the you know the games where they've been really successful. Um, it keeps a, an air of calm, I think, around the, the sort of defensive midfield area, but at the same time he's been playing a bit like a almost like a quarterback pinging balls. Um, from from the one penalty area um, up forward to say Rafinha, who's who's also been fantastic this season as well. So um, yeah, I, I think Calvin Phillips. He's had a he's had quite a few injuries actually. Um, it's a shame that he's had those where they've where they've happened. Although I think one was um, on England duty too. So um, we'll wait and see what happens at the end of the season with with regards uh, his England mm. prospects. But yeah, he's certainly been he has been the. Uh, the, the the secret I think for Leeds' success because I say without him they've um, they've struggled except for when they played against Newcastle <laughs> when they hammered Newcastle even without Calvin Phillips <laughs> I'm surprised that neither of you have lumped for Jack Grealish at least in your top three at some point um, I think he's been really impressive for Aston Villa this season um, I, I think he probably would be fairly in with a shout for a lot of people in terms of their top three players of the season so far and also Harry mm. Kane absent he's turned into a prime creator as well as a prime goal scorer he's enjoying a really really fruitful season productive season as a season though as a see the whole season has he had a good season Harry well, his Kane? numbers are phenomenal Jim he's scoring goals he's they assisting always are. they are um mm. and you know last season Kevin De Bruyne won the Premier League uh, player of the season and Liverpool won the league by 18 points so why shouldn't it have been a Liverpool player I think we're in this narrative aren't we we're stuck in this idea that 
whoever plays for the best team in the league should get the player of the season award um i don't think it matters too much who gets you know the player of the season award at the end of the season i just think it's interesting to see who has caught different people's eye you know for instance for me uh, you know Ian's probably more likely to pick Phillips because he's a Leeds fan and he's seen far more of him I can't profess to have seen loads of Leeds this season but he wasn't even in my thinking Calvin Phillips when I'm thinking my mm-hmm. top three players but yeah I have seen plenty more of Aston Villa and I would probably put Jack Grealish in my top three um, so I think it just is an interesting debate to be had to, to see who would be the the best player in the Premier League in terms of the votes because I think People will need to start voting soon, those inside the professional game, for their PFA Player of the Season. But interesting nominations there from Jim and Ian. Those, uh, that was my question. Now it's time to look at some of yours. This one comes from Michael Johnston, who lives in Australia, by the way. This came in on Twitter and also left us a really nice message uh, about the podcast as well. So, Michael, thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, his question is, with De Gea missing the last couple of Manchester United games due to paternity leave... Is this the chance for Dean Henderson to establish himself as United's number one or will David De Gea be reinstalled as soon as he's available again? Interesting question that, Jim, isn't it? Because if you look at the win against Manchester City in the Manchester derby at the weekend in the Premier League, it was Dean Henderson's throw, uh, which went over the halfway line, I think, in the end, which set Luke Shaw away and eventually resulted in United scoring the second goal. So... I think in the two games he has had, when David De Gea has been away, he's looked good. That's certainly been the suggestion from a few Manchester United supporters, hasn't it? That this is the time for Dean Henderson to take that number one jersey. And we've seen it happen before, plenty of times. At United, we've seen it happen before, that a player takes the opportunity that is presented to them because of certain notable absentees and he runs with it. Marcus Rashford only made his debut for Manchester United because they were down to their bare bones and attack due to injuries and look what he's done he's barely been out of the team since he made that debut so potentially we could be seeing that as the case with Henderson now and he's barely put a foot wrong in the chances he has had in that number one jersey he's played in he's come in he's played well there were those questions about his distribution but as you say he set up a goal with his throw at the weekend so he's proved he has got that distribution as part of his game so he's kind of proved he can be that number one spot for Manchester United whether he'll retain that when David De Gea returns from paternity is a completely different question, I think. Because for Manchester United, there's going to be an element of them wanting to protect their asset. And right now, David De Gea has a transfer fee on his head that would enable them to recoup a large amount of their outlay in terms of transfer fee that they paid initially and in terms of the huge wages he's on as well. With 300 grand a week or something it is, isn't it? Which is absolutely insane. So from Manchester United's point of view, they're going to want to, if they see... Henderson is their number one. They've got a choice to make in the summer. Either Henderson's going to leave to seek first-team football or they need to move on David De Gea. I think they'll go for the latter. I think they'll look to move David De Gea onto a club, potentially one in La Liga, and they'll want to kind of suggest they have some kind of interest, some kind of value in him so he doesn't leave on the cheap. So I don't think it's going to happen immediately. I don't think he's just going to take that number one jersey, but I think... He's proved in the last few weeks that as of the summer, he will be Manchester United's number one. I think it's the way he commands his box 
which De Gea hasn't really seemed to have been able to do in the last season or so. And ironically, it kind of coincides from when David De Gea signed a new contract. Everyone was saying, tie him down to a new deal. They made him an extremely high earner at Manchester United. I just feel that he hasn't quite been the same player uh, since then. Uh, it has been a difficult couple of seasons for David De Gea. I still think he's a top quality goalkeeper, but Henderson's distribution, his ability to command his penalty area and the fact he's young with plenty of miles still to go in the tank. I mean, he could establish himself as a Manchester United number one for years and years and years to come. Um, Potentially remind- good for England as well, isn't it? When of you look, if you've got Henderson at the back, you've got Harry Maguire in the centre-back position, Wambasaka, who I know is on the skirts of the England team at the moment but him at right back Luke Shaw who's playing brilliantly at left back potentially you've got a really good core of an English back line there playing week in week out together and that's got to be a positive yeah 100%. not that Manchester United are concerned by that but it reminds me a little bit of when Chelsea had Czech and Courtois and you know they had Courtois out on loan at Atletico Madrid who was performing really well and they had to make a decision whether to stick with Czech or twist and go with Courtois in the end they went for for youth and although he's not at the club anymore, it seemed like the right decision at the time with Czech moving on to Arsenal. And now, obviously, he's retired and back at Chelsea. Thanks so much for your question, Michael. Appreciate that you listen all the way from Australia. So thanks so much for that. Uh, this next question comes from Enliak on Instagram. Do you guys find that managers get treated differently in the UK or the Premier League than they do in other countries? For example, Thomas Tuchel didn't seem to have too many fans when he was manager at PSG, but people seem to be loving him since he's gone to Chelsea. Interesting question, that one, Ian. Yeah, but then again, I guess Tuchel's had an unbeaten start to his his time at Chelsea, which is certainly going to help people um, think positively of him. He does seem to be... Well, I suppose in, in this country, first of all, we've got the press, haven't we, which is different from um, many countries in terms of how they report football, um, much more involved, much more sort of uh, day-to-day hands-on, I suppose, than some publications, say, in Europe, which are maybe weekly or, I suppose, I don't know, without reading, being able to read sort of French and, and, and Spanish newspapers and stuff, I'm not sure how they how they do go about it, but I think that they do have quite strong opinions still but maybe not quite in the same way as as the British press and the British press I suppose do have more of a a relationship perhaps with the clubs um, on a on a personal level you often have the same reporters going to the same clubs and they build up that <clears throat> kind of um, rapport maybe but then that then that reflects um, how how they project these people but Similarly, that can be also damaging, can't it? We've seen various managers be taken apart by the British press over time um, as well. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's, that's a question you really have to you would have to ask mm. a manager who's worked worked in different countries, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think we'd have to send Sam Allardyce out to uh, Atletico Madrid <laughs> or something like that. See how they deal with him out there. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be one. I mean, I don't know. Um, I suppose with PSG they are maybe slightly different to yeah. Chelsea in the fact that... They just want to win the Champions League exactly. at PSG. That's all they care about. They, they, unless, you're winning, unless you're winning absolutely everything, then you're probably you know, a waste of space as far as they're concerned. Whereas I suppose in this country, we do, we do take success in, in, in various forms. You, know, you, can, you could win a domestic trophy and that's all right, or you could do pretty well in the Premier League and finish fourth, and that's still a fairly decent season sometimes. But of course, you do have to win uh, mm. as well on, on other seasons. Whereas with PSG, and probably similar for Barcelona maybe as well, and, and Real Madrid and teams like that, where it's out-and-out success every single season, otherwise it's a disaster. 
There is. I don't yeah. think any club in this country is quite like that. Mm. I think one flip side of it, one sort of example on the other side of the coin, let's just say, Jim, would be Graham Potter, who managed Ostersunds in Sweden and kind of built his profile as a coach in Sweden, much like Roy Hodgson did all of those years ago in Scandinavia. And he's still revered in Scandinavia for the way he uh, managed some of the teams um, over there in, in Sweden. So I think that there are examples, although very rare, of English managers being kind of revered in European countries um, and maybe treated slightly differently over there than they are in the UK rather than the other way around. I think it does happen. I think player managers do get put on a pedestal when they achieve success at clubs and it happens all over Europe. Just have a look at Bobby Robson at Barcelona and he was an absolute hero from his time in La Liga. I, mm. I think, I think um, Ian's right though. I think very rarely does that halo effect kind of extend to outside of the country in which the success has been had, which is kind of the case that you mentioned with Graham Potter to a certain extent. And it is largely partly due to the attention that the press put on managers, which has positive and negative effects. They It can elevate them, but equally it can prove too much and it can knock them down as well. Some managers have just failed to cope with the scrutiny that the horrible British tabloid press put on people. <laughs> so it does have both sides to it. I also think there's an element of arrogance about it. There's kind of a mentality and a narrative that says, if you're a good manager, if you're world-class, can you mm. do it in the Premier League? If you haven't done it in the Premier League, then maybe you're not all that. And we talk about how competitive the league is from position one to position 20. That's part of that story. But it is a little bit arrogant to think a manager's not worth it, not <laughs> haven't proved their worth until they won a Premier League title. But yeah, I mean, from Thomas Tuchel's point of view, you can kind of see why people are praising him because he has come as Chelsea and he has made an instant and slightly miraculous difference to that team. Whereas <laughs> Frank Lampard had this flaky defensive team that had flashes of brilliance but didn't really offer much and conceded loads of goals. Tuchel's come in and gone, look, I've got the same players and we've conceded, what is it, three goals or something since he's come into Two. that club? Two goals. One I of mean, them was a pen. That 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 is miraculous. So I think... Thomas Tuchel deserves the love let's give Thomas Tuchel the love he deserves <laughs> well talking of British managers managing overseas we mentioned him before we started the podcast John Toshak once managed Real Madrid um, and the most recent appointment came for him in 2018 where he managed an Iranian club called Tractor so sometimes <laughs> sometimes the greats do fall from grace thanks so much everyone for your questions for this section of the podcast AQA all questions answered every Wednesday here on Football Social Daily to get your questions into us just follow us on social media slide into the or DMs with your question at the Sports Social on Twitter, at Sports Social Official on Instagram, and on Facebook. Just search in the search bar, just tap in Sports Social, and you'll find our page there. But that's it for today's episode of the podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you very much, Ian. Nice one, Niall. Thank you. My name's Niall. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and that way you won't miss another episode of the podcast again. We'll be back again tomorrow with more here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sport Social. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.